Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Kristen Turner, and today I'm talking to Jillian Rogers about her book, Resonant Recoveries, French Music and Trauma Between the World Wars, which has just been published by Oxford University Press. Her work seems especially timely to me because she thinks about how music helps people understand and deal with trauma. We are having this conversation in January 2021, in the ninth month of the global coronavirus pandemic, which for many people has been, if not always traumatizing, certainly emotionally challenging, and has left millions of people grieving the deaths of friends and family members. In this book, Rogers looks at France in the aftermath of World War I, which left its residents mourning a lost generation and many soldiers suffering from what we would now call post-traumatic stress disorder. Looking at the topic from multiple perspectives, Rogers discusses everything from French attitudes towards public displays of grief to an analysis of some compositional techniques prevalent in post-war French classical music that may have been a response to trauma. Welcome, Jill. Thank you for joining me today to talk about resonant recoveries. Thank you so much, Kristen. I'm really happy to be here and talking with you. So this is a really fascinating topic, and I'm wondering how you came to write about trauma in general and this particular period, in, in I guess, in specific. Sure. Um, so this... This topic, I guess, has in some ways a long history with me um, and in some ways a shorter history. Um, so I'll just start by saying I never expected when I entered my PhD to be working on French music. It had literally never occurred to me. And I actually wasn't really expecting to work on grief or trauma either. Um, but I had an experience towards the end of my first year of graduate school at UCLA. Um, I had a cat of mine pass away. Um, and it was, it was very sad. Um, but I'd had a cat pass away the year before too, but this, the death of the second cat really just took me completely off guard. And I was so affected by this experience. I think I cried every day for about a year. Um, and while I was mourning that loss, um, I decided to take a an, in, an independent study with um, Professor Tamara Levitz at UCLA. She would go on to become my dissertation advisor. But she had taught an uncanny modernism seminar a couple of years prior, and a couple of people who knew I was interested in the uncanny uh, recommended that I talk with her about it. And so I did, and we decided to do an independent study. And in her syllabus, because she at that time had been working on modernist mysteries, Persephone, um, when she she'd been working on that book, and so. Um, at the at the at the time, that syllabus for the uncanny modernism class was a lot of French modernist composers and compositions, um, and so I I was more interested in applying this to Mahler, who was really very much in my wheelhouse and who I thought I might end up writing a dissertation project on at the time, but. Um, 
at one point in the semester, we'd read all of this literature on um, modernism and melancholia and on mourning. And I just fell in love with the literature on mourning. Um, and I just couldn't get enough of it. And then while I was listening to a couple of pieces by Ravel, um, I just heard something in his music that resonated with my own experience of grief. And that basically led to the seminar paper that would become the seeds of the dissertation, which then were the seeds for the book. Now, getting into trauma was a little bit different. Um, I got into the work on trauma because, well, grief is is very closely related. I think of grief as a kind of subset of trauma. Um, and uh, so I was already working on that for the dissertation. But in the second to last year of my PhD, I was finishing up my archival research in France in May of 2013. Um, and I was sexually assaulted while I was coming back from a friend's house um, by a stranger on the street. Um, and uh, I was a mess afterwards for many, many, many different reasons. Um, and so kind of similar to how I had done with um, examining grief um, through my, my research and my scholarship after the death of my cat, um, I did something similar in terms of self-examination after this traumatic event. And um, I read Judith Herman's Trauma and Recovery, which is a classic um, psychology text. Like every therapist I've ever been to see has it on their shelves, but it's also something that um, most scholars who work on trauma in one way or another have at least uh, read, if, if not, um, even if they're, they don't directly engage with that book um, or her theories. And it just, it was like seeing my own experience reflected back to me. Um, and I was so struck by that. Uh, and it and it helped me um, understand myself and what I was going through um, in a very, very powerful and important way for me. And it was right around that time I was finishing up the PhD at that point that um, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do for the book. And I knew I didn't want to be specifically a Ravel scholar. I knew, which is what I wrote my dissertation on. Um, but I knew I wanted to be a, somebody who was working more broadly on French music and grief in this time period. And trauma seemed like a really apt lens, giving, given the ways in which I was starting to really become familiar with the literature around trauma from trauma studies more broadly. Um, and so that's how we came to this intersection between French music in the early 20th century and trauma studies. Well, I'm so sorry to hear what happened to you in 2013. And it, I think what you're saying really shows how scholars always bring some personal part of themselves in the perspective that they take on their work. And um, because this book, I think it, it resonates with empathy, but it's not necessarily a personal book. And I can really, um, uh, you can really, I, I can hear in your in your answer just now how you how you brought this perspective um, uh, that's not clear in the book, but it's definitely undergirds everything that you've written. Um, so uh, I appreciate you being, um, you know, talking about what happened to you. Oh, sure. Um, it, I think it's important for people to know um, that it's very hard for scholars to get away from bringing what goes on in their lives into the work that they do. Um, 
Yeah, and I think people don't really understand that when when you hear people going on and on about objectivity, how ridiculous that is. Like that everyone has a perspective, you know, and that that's not the same thing as bias. It's just how you understand the world is, of course, going to to affect how you understand the past. Right, exactly, and that quite frankly, we need all of those all of those perspectives. I think the world is a richer and better place, and I think scholarship is richer and better for having all of those different perspectives um, included. In oh it. yeah, I absolutely agree. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting about your book, actually, is that you make the point that it's easy to think that trauma is a sort of um, uh, a concept that transcends time and culture, as if you know, one our uh, experience um, at this moment of trauma and what that means can be applied um, throughout history and throughout different um, geographical areas and different cultural, uh, different cultures. And you make the point that that's not actually true. That actually trauma is culturally constructed and is rather specific to time and place. So, can you tell us a little bit about what trauma meant and what and sort of what mourning meant to? Um, France in that immediate post-war period that you are uh, studying for this book? Sure, I'm happy to. Um, and I might have to go back a little bit in order to do that, which, as you know, I also do in the book. I think almost every chapter I go back about a century before World War One to kind of um, talk about how we got to, to where we ended up in World War One, um, So uh, I guess one of the important things to say, especially when it comes to trauma, is that People understood trauma as um, something <clears throat> that you, well, first of all, you just didn't really talk about it very much. So I think one of the important things to recognize is that for French people after World War I, trauma was um, a kind of extreme response to war or to violence or to grief. Um, but it was also one that you didn't really talk about for many, many different reasons, many of which I lay out in the book. Um, but for your listeners, just to name a few, um, it was something that was really associated with cowardice in a lot of ways. It was also something that if you talked about and reported that you were experiencing, um, it was something that if you'd been a soldier um, might lead to them taking away your post-war benefits um, or your, um, your pension. Um, so there were a lot of different social and economic reasons to keep silent about trauma for the people in this period. Um, I mean, one of the interesting things is the word trauma doesn't even come up all that much. I mean, what they, I mean, so one of the things that I've, I had to do in this book and that I talk to my students all the time about um, when I'm teaching them like methodologies for talking about the past through the lens of trauma is that you have to find the socioculturally specific language that people are talking in so that you can see those moments when what they what they are talking about is probably trauma but they're not putting it in those exact words you just have to become familiar with people's language and the discourse in that period um, and so you know for instance um, military doctors rarely use the word the the, the kind of strict translation in French would be traumatisme, but they more often used words like commotion, émotion, uh, névrose de guerre. Uh, so they had all this other language um, for 
what we would now consider like shell shock or PTSD um, or or trauma. Um, and so that's one thing to understand is that the the language is really um, historically specific. Now, in terms of um, in terms of grief and mourning, again, that was something that like trauma, you weren't really supposed to talk about in public. You could talk about it in private, and quite a few people did. You see it in people's correspondence. Um, you see it in the way that some people talk about their experiences with other people in, in private conversations between friends. Um, but there, So that was one way of talking about it. And that's that's why I had to go to things like memoirs and diaries and letters in order to find some of the um, some of the more specific language about people's experiences of grief. But there was also at the same time, you could talk about it publicly, but it had to be in very particular ways. Um, so it had to be in a way that was supportive of the French state and and specifically of the war effort. So almost everything, when when you do hear public conversations about grief and mourning, it has to do with um, what did this person do for the nation and why should we remember them um, for those reasons? Uh, and so like a very good example that, that kind of demonstrates this is... Um, is Emma Debussy, the, the wife of Claude Debussy. She is writing to a friend of theirs, Andre Caplet, after Debussy has died. And while Debussy was, you know, known as a very like great French composer um, and was considered uh, by the nation to be a great French composer, that wasn't the same as him participating in the war effort, um, which he couldn't do as a soldier. He was um, too old at that point, And he also developed cancer um, during the war years. And so he was not uh, able to uh, participate in military action. Um, and so you see Emma Debussy, for instance, writing to Caplet, who is on the front lines about how guilty she feels for grieving to him in a letter about how sad she is that Debussy has died. And um, she actually says, like, I shouldn't be saying anything at all when all of you heroes are dying on the front lines. And so you get this um, very politicized discourse around mourning in the period. And I think that a lot of that actually ends up transferring into the language and the discourse around trauma. Um, because again, the people that were thought to the people for whom it was okay to um, experience some kind of trauma were those who had experienced frontline fighting. And for people who hadn't, um, even though, uh, as we know from something like the, the pandemic, like the people who are just going through everyday life um, in relation to something can experience trauma just as much as somebody who's on the front lines, for instance, in this particular scenario with the pandemic, frontline workers, right? I mean, the, 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 the experience of trauma is different but um, but it's still possible to experience trauma. And I think in France at this time, there was just a lot of guilt and a lot of shame around experiencing trauma or mourning, especially if you were um, living on the home front uh, or if you were grieving somebody who had not died as, as a result of the war. So how did that <clears throat> idea about mourning uh, which sounds very constrained. You know, you could only mourn in certain ways and it needed to be done in a very, I guess, restrained way. And only certain people could um, even 
I don't know, acknowledge trauma, for instance, as you were saying, how does that affect music and music's role in, in, you know, the process of mourning and, and um, the process of recovery from trauma? Well, in a lot of ways, but one of the, the main ways that I talk about in the book is that music offered um, a certain amount of uh, silence isn't really exactly the right word, but it, because it's not a, um, a, a verbal discourse very often, um, people would use music to cope with, but also to express or articulate grief and trauma um, because um, they didn't have to publicly acknowledge uh, that that what they were actually doing was expressing grief or trauma. Um, there was a certain amount of plausible deniability that came with music making, you know, even if something to an audience member perhaps was perceived to, um, you know, be communicative of trauma, the, the person involved in the performance or the composition of that piece could deny it and say, oh, no, 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 it was about, it was about something different. And so I think that that's one reason that music becomes such an important medium for people in articulating grief and trauma after the war. The other aspect of it um, is the, and I taught, this is really one of my main, main points throughout the book, is that music is an embodied phenomenon. And the people in this period, I think, whether consciously or not, I think they had this recognition that music as an embodied practice had the potential to heal um, or had the potential to communicate things. Um, and, and again, because that's, uh, that's not something where they have to publicly acknowledge that's what, that that is the function that the music is taking on, music becomes really, really powerful in this particular context. Yes, I wondered about that because you um, you talk a lot about this idea that in um, French thought there was um, a direct connection between mind and body, right? They didn't see um, a difference between the two. And so that Anything that affected the mind affected the body and vice versa. And they also thought of music as being corporeal, you know, that it, 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 was, it was true vibrations in the air. And those vibrations could affect not just the mind, but also the body. So do you think they thought of music in an almost medicinal way? And that was one reason that they found a use for it, for instance, in hospitals and, um, and we're okay with large, you know, with a lot of musical, uh, you know, that using music in, in, um, processing grief was appropriate when in other ways they were so, um, uh, so against any kind of public, um, acknowledgement of grief. Um, yeah, I mean, I think to a certain extent, I think especially in the 19th century, it gets framed in um, more medicinal, music gets framed in more medicinal contexts. Um, I think that by the time we get to World War One, the, the way that music is often described or explained, there are there are times when they're thinking about vibrations as um, like when doctors and nurses are thinking about vibrations as, as helpful. I mean, I talk quite a bit about that in, um, in the book's second chapter, but I also think that for a lot of people, um, 
music was, so music had a really complicated, people had a very complicated view of music in the interwar period. Um, I mean, I'm sure that's probably the case for most time periods, but in this one, you know, there were a lot of folks who considered music to be really frivolous um, and and a kind of almost sacrilegious activity, uh, especially during war. And what I think is interesting is that you see people on the front lines. Um, so like kind of more uh, older guard composers such as Saint-Saëns, and I'm trying, trying to think of else, Guédalge, and there's somebody else too, I think Charpentier, who are all living on the front line, or, or sorry, they're all living on the home front, and they're talking about how um, there's no way that they can make music right now, um, because that would just be completely sacrilegious to engage in this um, pleasing, frivolous activity. And then one of the interesting things is that you see all of the people on the front lines who were like, no, 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 give me the music. <laughs> give me opportunities to make music. Like that is the one thing that provides me with a sense of pleasure, a sense of joy. This is one of the very few things that makes me feel connected to people that I've, that I've, um, that I'm missing at the moment, whether because they've died or because I'm out here on the front lines and they're, um, they're back home. Um, and so we see that really consistently is that the, the people on the home front are anti-music making and the people on the front lines who are actually experiencing the trauma firsthand, um, they are the ones who are who really see all of music's benefits. I, I would say, you know, an interesting thing is you don't see very many military doctors. So military medicine in this point in time is, is a huge, huge field. Um, and there's um, a whole series of books that's coming out at this time in France. There are numerous different medical journals that are dedicated almost entirely during the war years to discussing military medicine. Um, and yet, music rarely comes up in those. And, and I think that that is because music was also understood by people, especially people in the military from the accounts that I've seen. Music and musicians were seen um, as uh, not as, as valuable as other um, things and, and qualities. So one of the things that I talk about in the book is that a lot of a lot of musicians who participated in the war, um, they operated as musiciens um, brancardiers, which is basically they were musicians slash stretcher carriers. They were usually not equipped with weapons of any kind, and yet they were the people who were going to the front lines and bring, collecting and bringing back the dead for burial. And so they had this really, really important and also very dangerous role, and yet Many of the musicians in their firsthand accounts of the war um, and of, of being in the military, they talk about how um, people uh, often accuse them of being embusqué, which basically means um, a kind of shirker of responsibility. Um, they talk about them as being lazy, as being cowards. Um, and a lot of this, I think, had to do with music being understood as um, as like not a very masculine art form. Um, and so you see this kind of gender discourse affecting the way that music is being perceived by the military as well. 
That's really interesting. And actually, the gender aspect of this was um, something I was um, struck by as well in your book, because you definitely bring in women. But um, just because of the gendered um, aspect of classical music, most of the women you talk about are performers, or you talk about them in their role as performers. For instance, Nadia Boulanger, you talk about more as a performer than as a composer. Um, and most of the men, certainly not all, you talk about in their role as composers. So do you see um, do you see a difference in gender that goes beyond um, uh, in, in that musical reaction or the use of music? Do you see a gendered response that goes beyond the difference in their actual roles as musicians? Yes. Okay, I hope I understood your question correctly. So, yeah, I didn't ask it very well. No. I was just thinking that, you know, there's, of course, there's going to be a difference between how a performer responds musically and how someone who is a composer and writing a piece, that those are different things. But I'm wondering if, and there is that difference in your book because of just, you know, that's just the way it is. There are not that many women composers in this period. So I'm just wondering if there's a gendered response as well that goes beyond the profession difference. Does that um, make more sense? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there definitely is in how people mourned and then perceptions of people's mourning. So that's how I was going to answer the question initially. So I'm not sure if that's kind of where where you'd like me to go with this. Oh, but I sounds can good to me. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, um, so there was an expectation that like male musicians were going to be, I mean, they were just going to grieve less <laughs> openly, um, right. And, and publicly, except for in these, except for in the handful of spaces where they were permitted to do so, for instance, at, um, certain kinds of commemoration ceremonies and, and that kind of thing. And even then you weren't supposed to do too much of it. Um, and, and then on the other hand, there is this expectation that women are going to be grieving more, but at the oh, and I should say that some of that comes from um, public perceptions of war widows and the fact that their duty as women, if like if they weren't going to be able to participate in the fighting of the war, then they needed to be the cultural bearers of grief in France. And so there was this expectation that women were going to grieve more. However, there were people were also really keeping tabs on the extent to which women were grieving as well. So regardless of the gendered nature of uh, how people expected you to mourn, um, there was always, uh, there were people always commenting on other people's grief. And as a result, you have, um, you have this culture of stoicism that develops. Um, so I would say that that's definitely one way in which gender comes up. I mean, I think, I mean, I completely appreciate the distinction that you're making between composers and performers and the fact that, yeah, I mean, the the vast majority of the people that I talk about in the book when I'm talking about composers are men. Um, and I would say in terms of the performers, there's, there's quite a few um, male performers who I'm talking about. And that is one of the things I tried to do in the book was to think about composers, first of all, not just as composers, not just in this, what we typically consider to be a masculine role, but rather that at the same time that they are composers, they're also 
listeners. And very often they're also performers, even if they're only performers in the moment of composing. So I, I try to kind of get away from that really strict distinction between composers, performers, and listeners, and understand that very often you are all of these things at once. And I think that the same thing is going on with a lot of the performers, that I talk a lot about how performers influenced composition in ways that kind of uh, take down that mythology of the modernist composer is like the singular artistic genius. And instead note that very often a lot of the performers that these composers knew were contributing quite a bit to how they composed. Um, and that, that understanding somebody as a performer means that they are also a composer of that musical performance. And so um yeah, I know that that doesn't really answer your question, but I just thought that I would note that I do try quite a bit to kind of get away from the like great tales of composers kind of narrative and talk about these people as human beings who were musicians. But music making for me, I think, is is very broadly conceived. And I think that's been a really important framing of, of this project for me. Um, it allowed me to not just focus on major composers. I mean, I think this was a lot of the reason that I chose in the end to not write a book about Ravel. I chose to write a book about French musicians because that to me made a lot more sense um, than a kind of composer focused book. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, and I should say the way I answer, asked that question did not give, do justice at all to exactly what you're talking about, which was you make very clear um, that that these all these musicians were people first and that they were interacting with music, as you said, not just as composers or not just as performers, but as as you know, musical citizens, maybe is, is one way to think about it as someone who's listening, who's making music, who's performing, you know, who's, who's creating a new piece and creating a new performance, performance, all of that. So I didn't mean to suggest that you didn't do that in the book. <laughs> by that question. Okay. <laughs> I was just trying, I was just trying to sort of get at that. There was, I mean, I felt like you were saying there was, there were, the gender plays into this in a lot of ways. And one way is about this expectation of mourning and what you call this heroic masculinity mm -hmm. that runs through French culture, which did keep men from mourning in the same way as women. And that, you know, women were allowed more um, space to uh, mourn in a more public way. And that included women musicians in a way that, that was more difficult for men. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, but you also talk about music as being a linking practice, yeah. um, and and I wonder if that's um, one way to get to to help people who are listening that haven't read the book yet to understand sort of how complicated music was in um, the way that, it, or maybe not complicated, but it helped um, explain how music could play actually a similar role, no matter what the primary way that a person might be interacting with music at a, um, at any particular time. Can you talk about that idea of linking practice? Sure. So this comes from, um, 
specifically from a psychoanalyst named um, Vamik Volkan and other people have um, suggested similar things. So Christopher Bolas is another contemporary psychoanalyst who uses the term evocative object. Um, and he does frame that specifically in relation to trauma. And so I am taking this very contemporary to us idea and um, thinking, like using that as a lens through which to try to understand what was going on in this historical period. Um, and so the, the term that usually gets used is linking object. And I expanded out to linking practice because to me, it wasn't just about objects specifically, although sometimes it was, but it was more about what do you do with that object? What What is the action that you're taking in relation to it? So um, in that particular chapter where I'm talking about linking practices, I'm talking about the fact that um, people in interwar France, these musicians in interwar France understood music making in all of its forms as a way to connect with dead loved ones. Um, and that they understood this, again, as like an embodied practice um, that at least to a certain extent could be therapeutic. Um, I think for other people, and this is one of the things I get at it in the book, is that while, for, while some people were trying to achieve ultimate healing, I think in a lot of instances, people were trying to just be able to live their everyday lives and deal with the pain that they were experiencing, but they did not want to fully get rid of the pain because that would, at least to them, signal that they were forgetting the person that they were grieving and they did not want to do that. And they were terrified of that. Um, so, so some of the ways that I talk about people using music as a linking practice to connect to dead loved ones um, is through um, uh concert curation. So I talk specifically about Nadia Boulanger and Marguerite Long um, and how they uh, they programmed concerts with the with either the music of loved ones on the program. So that was the case with Nadia Boulanger and she programmed a lot of her sister Lily's music. Lily had died in 1918, right at the end of the war. Um, and so Nadia um, edited a lot of Lily's compositions. Um, she often transcribed them. She might orchestrate them um, or arrange them. She took some of the um, uh, like, chamber music or orchestral pieces and transcribe them for organ. And then Nadia herself could play them or she'd conduct them. So when, when she toured, for instance. Um, and so she really, really brought Lily's compositions out into the musical world. Um, and she had a kind of platform to do so. And I think that that was to, on the one hand, um, hold up and maintain her sister's memory. I mean, Lily Boulanger, even though I would not consider her a canonic composer, she is more of a canonic composer than a lot of other women composers of that same period in France. And that is largely because Nadia Boulanger continued to perform Lily's compositions um, for her entire life. Um, and so that's one way that we see uh, her like bringing uh, Lily's compositions, bringing the memory of Lily out to the public. But I also think that Nadia took on the programming of Lily's compositions as a way to actively in her everyday life, remember what it had been like to be in Lily's presence. Um, so that all of it in my, in the way that I'm thinking about this, every time Nadia sits down to transcribe a piece by Lily, she's hearing 
Lily's commentary on that piece, or she's um, she's uh, thinking about sharing a space with Lily and making music together in that space. Um, and and we see that particular side of things as well. For instance, in Marguerite Long's concert curation. So Marguerite Long was a French virtuoso French pianist whose husband um, Joseph de Marliave passed away um, in August 1914, so right at the very, very beginning of the war. She did not get confirmation that he had died until, I think, October of 1914. So she was, like many people in World War I, um, she was left without news of what had actually happened to him for quite some time. Um, She completely gave up performing for about three years. Um, And then when she started performing again in um, 1917, she uh, she played a lot of the music that would have necessarily reminded her of him and of, of specifically of being with him. So she came back to music. The very first music that she's performing publicly, it's all music that or a lot of it is music that she had been preparing in his presence for like a big recital that she gave in the summer of 1914. Um, and so you can see that She's playing a lot of music that he loved, that they loved together. And so that allowed her to remember him really actively in concert performance Um, and also in the practice that it would take in order to prepare for those performances, which I think is equally as important as like the getting up on stage and, and playing a piece publicly. Um, and then I would say that we also see this with composers. So the two examples that I talk about at length in that chapter are Ravel. There was going to be some Ravel in the book because he's who I know really, really, really well um, and have for many years. Um, and then also Darius Mio. Um, And so in both of those instances, I talk about how they both returned again and again in the compositions that they wrote during and after the war. So I should note here, Ravel lost his mother at the beginning of 1917. And that was really, really hard on him. Basically, until he enlisted in the military in 1915, he'd always lived with his mother. And he was at that point, like in his 40s. So, you know, he'd only ever known sharing a home with his mother, um, at least until he was on the front lines. And then Mio lost his very close childhood friend, Leo Latil, um, in 1915. He was killed in the war. Um, Mio couldn't uh, enlist because of a medical condition. Um, And so he was left to grieve the loss of this very dear friend. And so you see, after both of these losses, you see both of these composers coming back to pieces that they had once been in the act of composing next to these people that they had lost. Um, Or you see them um, coming back to texts um, but basically, they're they're coming back to anything that would remind them of being in the presence of these people. And so, in my mind, when we listen to these compositions, um, like uh, like some of the ones that I talk about in the book, for instance, are uh, uh, Mio's um, string quartet, his third string quartet, which he wrote um, in Latil's memory. That if we don't understand the ways in which Mio wrote that as a kind of, he wrote it understanding musical composition as a kind of linking practice, then we're, we're really missing something about how that piece took on meaning for the people who were involved in its composition and performance and its, and its whole history. Well, that was one of the things that really struck me about your book was the musical analysis that you perform in that book. It was very different. 
in some ways than any analysis I've seen, um, because you really provide um, a fascinating explanation for some stylistic developments in French music after the war that, you know, everyone notes that that happened. Um, some of the composers that you um, study um, are, have been studied many, many other times, as you know, but yet you found a way to look at their music through the lens of trauma that I think really convincingly explains why French music in this period becomes much more interested in, um, at least for some composers, in kind of uh, a lot of um, ostinato patterns, a lot of repeated patterns. Can you talk about um, that side of your analysis, which I think is is really um, really so smart and such an interesting way to think about um, how trauma might come out in music in ways that might seem a little counterintuitive to us? Yeah, thank you so much for this question. It's it's one of my favorite to answer. So we'll see we'll see if I can do it justice. But so I might back up just a little bit here and say that this chapter, which I think is well placed at the center of the book, you know, like it's right in the middle of the book. Um, it actually came out of one of my dissertation chapters, um, and I had I had noted, I think even during my PhD coursework that something was happening here, <laughs> that there was this tendency towards, I mean, obviously, like the the impulse towards the this kind of ostinato-based neoclassicism in France in this period is well known, like we all know about that. But thinking about what it takes to perform that was something that I thought about um, the first time I started looking into Marguerite Long. Um, because I noticed that all of the music that she was playing and specifically a lot of the music that Ravel wrote for her was this very, very repetitive music. And then I started to notice that this was all over the place and that specifically many of the people who were most affected by the war or that we can, I don't know, like postulate were, were maybe most affected by the war because it's impossible to ever really know. But that a lot of people who had experienced grief were um, writing this very repetitive music, or on the other hand, that so one of the first places that I noticed this, in addition to Marguerite Long, was if you look at the other music that Ravel is writing for friends after the war, and he specifically dedicates music to a lot of different friends, or he will also write pieces that were intended to be performed by a particular performer. And if you look at that whole network, it's all people who were grieving, all of them. And so um, I started to, to think like there, there just has to be there has to be a link here. Um, and one of the things that I found really striking in thinking through this, and I mean, some of this, I will say, also came from um, my own experience um, in terms of listening to repetitive music. So I will just uh, say that I love minimalism. I've loved minimalism for a really long time. I find that minimalism really helps me with um, bodily regulation and mood regulation and concentration and all kinds of things. And look, this is not new. Like Bob Fink has talked about this. This is also something that Tia Denora has talked about. Um, but, you know, I, I, there, it does something for me. And so I started to think like, is it doing something for these people? And not just in the act of listening, though, I think that that probably was happening, but I think specifically in the act of composite or sorry, in the act of performance that um, the repetitive 
motions that are required by the performer, by the performer's body in order to um, play a lot of these pieces is, is just like incredibly striking. And then I made the connection as well to um, something else that was going on culturally. So in addition to the mind-body connection, which which you already talked about, um, because that's definitely something that's going on. So they did understand that in moving the body, you could move the mind um, and vice versa. So I think that that's one of the reasons this is going on. But a whole other thing that is happening in the same time period is people are becoming increasingly from about like the middle of the 19th century onward, they're becoming increasingly interested. And when I say people, I'm talking about a wide range of folks. So scientists, um, physiologists, psychologists, um, uh, sociologists, so a lot of different people and musicians, I'll get to that in a second, but they're all becoming really interested in rhythm and how rhythm works on the body. And out of that, oh, and you're also getting a lot of um, people very interested in gymnastics. And gymnastics then was not how we think of gymnastics now. Like not everybody was on the balance beam. It was um, it was really more like I would say aerobics to a certain extent. Um, and so there was bodily bodily movement came to be at the center of understandings of gender, of um, nationhood and national identity. Um, and uh, and so that's happening. And out of all of that, you get Jacques Delcroze, who's a major figure, particularly in that chapter, though he comes up in almost every um, every chapter. Uh, and Jacques Delcroze was, uh, if you recognize the the name Delcroze, anybody who's a um, music educator probably knows at least a little bit about Delcroze or has, has heard his name because he basically came up with um, what is sometimes described as uh, a rhythmic or metric solfege. Um, so rather than, um, you know, uh, Rather than being pitch focused, it's very rhythm focused. And a lot of what he did was match up bodily movements with keeping time in particular musical pieces. And he did this as a way of improving students and especially children's sense of rhythm and their sense of accuracy. But he also talks all the time in his writings, which were very prolific um, between the wars, about how important this was for so many other um, aspects of one's life and psychology. He talks about bodily movement and specifically his form of um, gymnastics or rhythmic gymnastics. Um, he talks about how they have the potential to cure neurasthenia, which is um, kind of kind of code for a kind of PTSD. It was really a kind of nervous weakness is the way that people thought about it. But a lot of the symptoms are similar to what we now see in what we now call PTSD. Um, he talks about um, its ability to improve just like your cognitive functioning. And then you see all of these people responding to Dow Crows, which when I discovered this was like a super aha moment. Um, but you see all of these people who are doctors and physicians and scientists and musicians who are responding to Jacques Delcroze. So not just, we, we're not just going here. I'm not just going here on what 
Dalcro said, I am going on what a number of different people have said about what his rhythmic gymnastics did for them. So you have people like the composer Germain Taillefer saying that during the war, this was the only thing that kept her going. She went to Dalcro's classes. Um, and that was that was like her saving grace during the war. And you have people like Cocteau talking about how helpful the method is. You have um you have a whole series of doctors who are writing about, for instance, how you can take the the intersection between movement and rhythm, um, bodily movement and rhythm that we see in Dow Crows and apply that to a kind of psychotherapeutic rhythmic massage. So you just have all of these. I mean, I really found that there's this explosion of people who are thinking about the effects that the effects of um, rhythm on bodily movement and then how bo- that impulse towards bodily movement translates into um, certain kinds of psychological healing. And so there's there was just so much to say on that. So yes, that is my um, kind of inroad into that music is paying attention to people's bodily movements and analyzing bodily movements rather than um, doing kind of like a strict metric analysis of those pieces. Well, that it was just fascinating, and I think very convincing that that would be a reason why that kind of music would become um, so important after the war. So that that was very cool. Um, as we sort of wrap up our discussion, I did want to bring up um, the pandemic. Actually, as you noted at the very beginning of your book, you wrote an introduction in April 2020. So we were at the very beginning of the pandemic as you were finishing all the work on this book. And I wondered, now that we've been, uh, we've experienced it quite a bit longer, um, I wonder if you are looking back at what you wrote and how you're thinking about these uh, topics. Is anything about what you understood um, about this work, has it changed at all for you in um, in these intervening months as you've experienced and as we've all experienced um, of uh, sort of a worldwide traumatic event? I mean, that's a really beautiful question, Kristen. Um, I guess I don't think that my take on the history has changed. Um, I think I'll need to get farther from it <laughs> before um, before I'm I'm able to to see what I might have done differently. Um, but in terms of it, okay, so in the in that preface, one of the things that I talk about are the resonances that I understood at that point in time, which, like you said, was only like a month into the pandemic. Um, the resonances that I understood between the work that I was doing and uh, or the people I was studying and their experience and the pandemic that we were living through. I think that in a lot of ways, my, I, w- I would definitely write a different preface now. I'll say that. Um, I, I wouldn't entirely change it because I think a lot of it, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this, but um, as somebody who is reading it when we're nine months into the pandemic. Um, but for me, I think that it's only going through the pandemic as long as we have has only kind of deepened my understanding of the people who I've studied. I mean, they went through this war for four years, hoping that it would be over every day and knowing for long stretches of time that it wouldn't be and having to readjust their own mental and emotional timelines. 
And I think that that resonates with me now more than ever. And my guess is if we're still here in a year, which let's hope that's not the case, that I will feel that even more. So I think that, you know, it's their experiences to a certain extent resonate with me more now than they did in that when I wrote that preface in April. And I think that with like with anything, we're not going to actually know the complete and total effects that this pandemic has had and will have on us for a long time. I mean, that's one of the hallmarks. Well, that's that's kind of maybe not a great word to use because it sounds too positive. One of the one of the characteristics of trauma is that it comes back. It like continues to haunt you. And so I just I think that we can't possibly know um what trauma is going to look like and how that's going to affect people until years from now, quite frankly. I mean, I think I know that I'm in survival mode right now, and I think many of us are. And I've, I've, I, I feel like, especially right now, and it might just be because of all that I have going on, but I feel like I am definitely suppressing my negative feelings around the pandemic and they'll like flash up in like little moments, but it's almost like I've just become accustomed to this life. And I think that that's something that we do when we're in survival mode, we kind of numb it out and just accept like, okay, this is the way it's going to be. I'm going to live with this. I've got to learn to live with this. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that that's likely what these people were experiencing as well. Um, and I will say, I think I've continued to learn lessons from the people I talk about. Um, one of my favorite chapters in the book is actually the, uh, the conclusion, because it's all about how these people found solace in each other. And I mean, that's something that comes up throughout the entire book, but I feel like in the conclusion, I kind of bring it all together and talk about the importance of, um, I talk about the importance of friendship. Um, And one of the things that I talk about is the importance of touch. Like that whole last um, chapter is about touch and understanding music in all of these, understanding the many, many different ways in which music touched people or allowed somebody to touch somebody else, Um, whether we're talking about physical touch or emotional touch, but that touch was central to that. And I mean, I do remember thinking over the summer when I think there was a certain point in the summer when I had gone five months without touching another human being. I live by myself. I'm single. And I was losing it. And I just thought like, wow, if I could go back and rewrite that, I mean, that is something I would talk about that, you know, we, they, they had this resource that I definitely don't have. Um, They were actually able to touch one another. Um, And that's not something I can do right now. Thank God I have my cats. (laughs) But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that that is something that is really striking to me. I mean, granted, they did live through the the flu epidemic in Europe as well, but I don't actually hear them talking about quarantining from each other much. So that does not seem to be something that was like at the forefront of how they were responding to the epidemic. Um, but in any case, um, I think what what I have learned from them is, from the people I study, is that even if I can't touch and be touched by music and by music making and by other human beings making music, then what I can do is just stay in touch with my friends as much as I can. Um, 
And because really, honestly, my, um, the people, the people in my life who I love are the people who have gotten me through this. And so that's definitely a lesson I've learned from, from this whole group of people in interwar France who I love. Well, I have to say that that conclusion really caught me as well. In fact, I even wrote down in my notes about questions to ask you the quotation um, or part of the quotation you used to open that conclusion, no nourishment can compensate for the grace and work of touching. And, you know, of course, immediately thought about we're living through a period when you don't touch many people. And as you said, you know, it can go months between being able to touch someone. And in fact, touching people is dangerous and scary. And um, uh, so that as a reader, um, certainly, uh, caught me and that whole discussion of touch definitely affected me in a way that I'm sure it would not have um, right. before this. And actually the other thing that really caught my attention was when you talked about master narratives and how institutions and the media really create a master narrative that everyone else sort of has to, um, in one way or another ends up conforming to, or has to be very thoughtful about ways that they're trying to work against that master narrative. And that really struck me as well when I think about, you know, because of President Trump's reaction to the pandemic, the master narrative um, in this country has been um, to ignore the losses um, that people are experiencing, to not really make... um, to not have much public um, acknowledgement of the trauma that fr- frontline um, uh, healthcare workers are experiencing. I mean, it comes up, but I think it's very much suppressed. If the master narrative is this is just all going to disappear, um, go out, don't wear a mask, that's emasculating, you know, all of those mm-hmm. master narratives that we're getting. And I'm particularly um, wondering if we can change that master narrative now that we have a different administration. In. And one of the first things that he did the night before President Biden was inaugurated was to have the first, in, that I know of, the first public, large-scale moment of mourning for all the people mm-hmm. that have died. And we haven't had that up to this point. And I think that makes a huge difference on how we are, at least I am coping with the pandemic to not have as part of our master narrative regular moments where we stop to mourn as a community, as a national community, all the people that have died and all the people that are suffering traumatic losses and traumatic experiences as a result of the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this has occurred to me a lot too. Um, I mean, one of the larger points uh, with that I'm trying to make with this book, which doesn't come out in like the detail within each chapter, but I talk about it a bit in the introduction and the conclusion is that we need to pay more attention to mental health and ignoring mental health issues is not going to get us anywhere. Right. And I feel like most of the Trump administration's um, that's maybe not the way I want to say that. I would say that, you know, the, the Trump administration, chose to largely ignore the negative mental health effects of not just the pandemic, but literally everything, right? Like, I mean, I think about the the travel ban, the, the wall between the U.S. and Mexico. I mean, all of these things are really or the the separation between parents and children at the border. I mean, like he it's it's as if he wanted to completely ignore 
the mental health effects of all of these things. Um, and, 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 you know, the other side to that is he just doesn't even acknowledge that mental health crises can exist. And when he does, um, or when he did, they were stigmatized. And I think that we need to move away from that. And I do hope that the Biden administration will, will change that, um, or at least change that somewhat. But I think it has to be a larger social and cultural shift to get towards destigmatizing mental illness and recognizing that we actually have to acknowledge that people have feelings um, in order to be in more ethical relationships with one another. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. And and also explains how music can become um, it can become a facilitator for those kinds of discussions, but it also can be a way to put them off by just let's listen to some pretty music, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and then move on. Right. So that it can um, it can be a way of pretending that we're acknowledging mental health effects, but actually just allowing sort of a moment of 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 feeling swept away by music that is being framed in the in the. Um, course of public mourning, but actually using that as a way to um, put off larger discussions of actually um, centering mental health in the way that we respond to these kinds of events, all, like all of the things that you're talking about, not just the mm -hmm. pandemic, but a, a lot of other things that happen um, as a result of, of public policy that is traumatic. So. Right, right, exactly. Well, we should probably um, wrap up this discussion. Um, but before we go, I would love to hear now that you have published this book, it's just come out. Um, uh, what, are, what, are, what projects are you working on today or now? Oh, <clears throat> okay. So um, the big thing that I'll mention, especially because I think that this will be out right before this happens. Am I right about that, Kristen? Maybe? Um, it should be, hopefully, right around. Okay. I, I, perhaps we should tell those listening that I am involved in what I think you're talking about <laughs> as well. And, <laughs> um, and yes, it should come out right around the same time. Okay, cool. So what we're talking about is that I will be hosting, quote, at Indiana University, where I work, um, an online international conference entitled Music, Sound, and Trauma, Interdisciplinary Perspectives. That's going to be taking place February 12th to 14th. You can mark your calendars. If you go to www.musicsoundtraumaconf2021.com, you can find um, our webpage, which has the program. Um, it has abstracts and bios for all of the papers and speakers. Um, and it also has a link where you can register for the conference. We're hosting over 100 presenters, and this is going to be um, academic papers, lecture recitals. We've got a series of workshops. We have five amazing keynote presentations by um, Maria Hamilton Abagunde from um, Indiana University, Maria Sismic from the University of South Florida, Lucy DeGray, who's a fantastic um, mezzo-soprano um, who it talks a lot about sexual trauma and its relationship to the voice um, is going to be there. We also have Laura Brown, who's a fantastic feminist psychologist. Um, and then we have the Pacifica Quartet, which is the string quartet in residence at um, Indiana University's Jacobs School of Music. And they're going to be playing um, the third string quartet by Shulamit Ron, who is a Chicago-based composer, um, but they, the... Um, 
the string quartet specifically commissioned this piece from her. And so she's going to be there and I'm going to host a talk back with the composer and the, the string quartet. So um, it's a really, really fabulous event. I'm very much looking forward to um, hosting that. Um, and so that's kind of where I'm at right now. My head is really in that. And I should say also that the conference is going to be the basis for two different publications. One is an Oxford Handbook of Music, Sound, and Trauma Studies. And then the other is a special issue of the Journal of Music History Pedagogy devoted to trauma-informed teaching. Um, so yeah, so that's a really, really exciting project. And maybe I could just stop there. I mean, I, I mean, I, I could talk about other things that I'm working on too, but the, the conference is kind of where my head is at right now because it's imminent. <laughs> and Kristen's giving a great presentation as part of that too. So Yes, well, I'm looking forward to that conference as well, and I'm glad that you you were able to tell us so much about it and um, and how much work that conference will continue to do beyond um, just those three days and the people that are able to attend, but also in the two publications coming out of that. So, and and I'm sure other people will take their um, their uh, presentations and turn them into other kinds of articles and other publications. So that's, it's really an exciting um, conference and I'm certainly looking forward to being part of it. This has been New Books in Music, a channel on the New Books Network, and I'm Kristen Turner, and I've been talking today to Jillian Rogers about her book, Resonant Recoveries, French Music and Trauma Between the World Wars. Thank you so much for joining me, Jill. Thank you so much, Kristen. It's really been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you.